So this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. I guess that's good. Um, okay, welcome to Feature Creep, colon... Built-in microwave, semicolon... Uh, what? Oh, uh, designing dystopias. <laughs> My dystopia is better than yours. <laughs> oh, yeah? Well... Yeah. Um... <laughs> so today uh today's idea i want to credit to my friend dave in australia shout out to dave yo um, hey dave <laughs> hey dave um and uh bros for life bro um <laughs> sorry <laughs> Uh, no, but he, ha- he had a, um, he was like, oh, have you read the letter that Huxley, Aldous Huxley wrote to George or- Orwell about 1984? And I was like, uh, no. So he, um, pointed me to this letter. And so there's a couple of articles that have been written about it, but essentially what happened, um, so George Orwell was a, um, high school friend, uh, sorry, George Orwell was a, st- wait, yeah, so Aldous Huxley was a high school French teacher and George Orwell was his student at one point. Right. And so then in 1949, so let's set the scene here. Um, so Aldous Huxley wrote uh, A Brave New World, which was published in 1932. A Brave New World was this um, sort of futuristic world state that... Um, had kind of it, it had this dystopian uh sort of theme to it um but and we'll get into the details in a minute but uh <laughs> and so his student George Orwell wrote a book 1984 um which was published in 1949 and so um i guess shortly after the book was written uh Aldous Huxley um wrote to George Orwell in 1949 and sent him this letter. And in the letter, he uh, essentially praises, um, uh, praises George's book. Um, But he says that essentially he's like, but my dystopia is better than yours. Um, And the reason he cites for that is that he argues that, um, that, the world of um, a brave new world or the dystopia in a brave new world is um, more likely to come about. Um, and therefore he prefers the, this because it's more that that somehow legitimizes it or makes yeah. it better than. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In what, fact, he says within, the... so um, he argues that within the next generation, I believe that the world's rulers will discover that infant, um, conditioning and narco hypnosis are more efficient as instruments of government than clubs and prisons, and that the lust for power will be just as a completely just as completely satisfied by suggesting by suggesting people into loving their servitude as by flogging and kicking them into obedience. So, um, yeah. So that kind of just this letter is kind of perfect because of um, what we're talking about. So, if you're just joining us, we've been kind of um 
loosely organizing thoughts around the concept of designing a dystopia or designing the best dystopia or basically what goes into designing a dystopia from well, the right because view. anything yeah. that you can like you know anything worth doing is worth doing right anything worth doing is worth doing right and so then we have to decide what is the right way to build a utopia or dystopia what's what is the best dystopia when we're talking about dystopias yes exactly um and so uh it just seems like now is as great a time as ever to discuss the concept of dystopias and what makes a good one. Um, you know, obviously the U.S. will be the very best best dystopia that ever existed. We all understand Listen, that. So we all went to dystopian colleges. We have all the best dystopian words. We have enormous dystopian brains. All all my friends are the best dystopian um, manufacturers, leaders, and creators. Absolutely. Right. Um, yep. So what I found interesting about uh, what we've said so far is that, um, like, uh, George Orwell's freaking teacher felt his book was so important that he wrote to him all those years later, but then was also like, but I got to tell you, I think my version is more likely. Yeah. Uh, so that makes my book better. Well, he didn't necessarily say that. That's like putting words in his mouth. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he kind of he made that statement as I said earlier about how he's basically arguing that um you know, cajoling people into servitude versus um forcing them into servitude. And right. um and he he says in other words, I feel that the nightmare of 1984 is destined to modulate into the nightmare of a world having more resemblance to that which I imagined in Brave New World. So his argument is that even if 1984 comes about at some point, it will eventually transform into the world of a brave new world. Um, his argument is never that one of these is more dystopian than the other. I think he's, his more mm -hmm. argument is just that one is more likely. Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with him, but you know, well, it's interesting that he says <clears throat> in the letter to Orwell, within the next generation, I believe that the world's rulers will discover an infant conditioning and narco-hypnosis are more efficient as instruments of government than clubs and prisons, and that the lust of power can be just as completely satisfied by suggesting people into loving their servitude as by flogging and kicking them into obedience. In other words, I feel that the nightmare of 1984 is, dis is destined to modulate into the nightmare of a world having more resemblance to that which I imagined in a brave new world, the change will be brought about as a result of a felt need for increased efficiency. Meanwhile, of course, there may be a large-scale biological and atomic war, in which case we shall have nightmares of other and scarcely imaginable kinds. What's interesting is that Aldous Huxley wasn't wrong at all about any of this stuff, but on top of being right about all of the things he was concerned about, he is also overlooked the possibility that his version of a dystopia does not stand apart from Orwell's. Like, both of them are now true. Right, right. Simultaneously. Yes, simultaneously. You know, you can kind of... Um, and I think that was something we were kind of discussing in one of our earlier um, episodes about this concept, was the idea that one of the key features is that you have both of these things. So you have... Right. Um, you have a path of escapism so that your population, the populate, the participants of the dystopia can escape, um, escape their physical nightmare. Um, but at the same time, you have, um, the concept of might makes right, 
which is a little bit, I, I think it, it's not a strong theme in 1984. Maybe I, I don't know, but I think when you kind of look at the concept of uh, might makes right, it's usually basically we're talking about brute forcing people to do things. And so if I can get you to do this thing through physical, you know, threat of violence or through actual physical harm or physical enforcement, then I will. And I'm right for doing it because that's the nature of that belief system or that sort of concept. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm very grossly dividing these two halves of the same coin or these two um, parts of the same dystopian concepts, which is to say one of them is like you offer a carrot to get people into this dystopian nightmare. And the other one is you beat them with a stick to get them into the dystopian nightmare. And, you know, both of them are tools in order to get everybody to participate in the night in the, in the dystopia. Yeah, we don't have to be purists about it here. No, no, and There's I would lots argue, of options. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, one approach to a dystopia or the you know designing a dystopia is to just put in all the parts um, rather than just kind of you know as we've kind of mentioned before, you've got concepts of like a hyper bureaucratic dystopia. Um, you have sort of the the sort of natural disaster or global scale disaster dystopia. Um, although mm-hmm. that's sort of like. I, I feel I feel like that kind of coincides with um, resource-based dystopias, which is to say that um, your you know resources have been limited in some way. Um, you know, yeah. oftentimes, I mean, you know, uh, global scale disasters like in the movies and stuff, you know, revolve around like destruction of the atmosphere and people having to you know transform into very cramped and and physically limited. Uh, living conditions or mm-hmm. um, other other sort of external factors that um, then devolve into these like micro um, cultures of dystopia, right? Like, you know, if we look at the kind of the Mad Max world, it's always like tribalism and each tribe is its, sure. own, its own version of a dystopia. No, no tribe is like this one is the utopian tribe and this one is the awful one. Like each one yeah. is kind of... <laughs> you know, has its own sort of issues. Um, it's just different flavors of sewage at that point. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just like human waste. Yeah. Yeah. And attitude and attitude. So, um, yeah, so that's it. We've covered it all. We're done. Okay. Moving on. That's it. That's it. Uh, no, I, so yeah. Did it, do we know what Orwell said back? Um, no, so I I was not able to find a response. Um, this is an excerpt from a book of letters of note, and so this was just a letter that was sent to him. So I don't know um, how he responded, uh, which is a good question. Um, and maybe I did a little bit of digging, and I wasn't able to find anything immediate because that was one of the first things that came to, up to me. Is like, are they having a conversation about this, or was this just a letter? Um, yeah. As far as I can who tell, wrote this, who, who wrote the yeah, article? You, as far as you can tell, what? Oh well, as far as I can tell, it was just a one-off letter that um, Huxley sent to Orwell. Um, yeah, and, that's what it reads like. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, uh, we're I I'm looking at an article. Uh, posted on openculture.com in uh 201503 so uh so you know march of 2015 um right march 17th 2015 that's st patrick's day isn't it 
Uh, sure. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, okay. So this is a five-year-old article, and yeah, uh, I can't tell who wrote it. Oh, by Jonathan Crow. Jonathan Crow is a Los Angeles-based writer and filmmaker whose work has appeared in Yahoo, The Hollywood Reporter, and other publications. You can follow him at John Crow. And check out his blog, Veeptopus, featuring lots of pictures of badgers and more pictures of vice presidents with octopuses on their heads. That okay. sounds really cute and adorable. Uh-huh. My, my question... Yeah. It, for Jonathan is... So somewhere... Uh, right in the article, just above Huxley's full letter in quotes, yeah. Um, he, Jonathan says, "Obviously, we are nowhere near either dystopic version vision, but the power of both books is that they tap into our fears of the state. While Huxley might make you look askance at The Bachelor or Facebook, Orwell makes you recoil in horror at the government throwing around phrases like enhanced interrogation and surgical drone strikes." You can read Huxley's full letter below. Uh, it's it's funny and interesting to me that clearly the impression that I get is that Jonathan has read both of these books. Yes. And that he's somewhat interested in the relationship between them and the subject matter that they were both writers of. But it's interesting that in 2015, he feels like it's worth saying that we're nowhere near a reality that encompasses either of those things. And I'm like, Jonathan, where do you live? Yeah. Like, do you really live in Los Angeles? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, um, I, uh, to put it in context, obviously in 2015, um, early 2015, we weren't even really aware, like, generally, I don't think we were aware that, um, we would be shortly transitioning to a very despotic leadership. Um, but that's like only one portion of no, the no, big picture. That's absolutely, been but I think grim for a while. Yeah, I agree, but I think that um, I think that it's. People- this is my podcast where I complain about things. I'm complaining about Jonathan's opinion. Jonathan, I don't like your opinion. Right, <laughs> disagree with your opinion. Your um, five-year-old opinion seems stale to me. <laughs> I think that uh, I think that people. <laughs> Um, it's, it's hard not to kind of feel like things are perfectly fine when they're good for you. Um, even when you're kind of reading in the news and things, it's like on balance, it's much easier to feel like, well, things are fine. Um, you know, and so I could make some assumptions about Jonathan. I don't know, but I could assume maybe that he's, uh, more liberal leaning. Um, you know, he lives in a, in a large California city, so he probably has like, what's considered more liberal ideals, although generally they're probably more centrist than actually extremely liberal. But um, that's beyond the point. My point being is that, uh, (laughs) you know, you as a liberal alive under Obama and you're not really that in tune to it. And and I'm just going to assume he's white, but he could not be. Um, But, you know, he's writing about a very white person problem, I suspect. So um, anyway, his, uh, 
he so i'm making all these assumptions none of them could be true i'm just suggesting that if he were this person who is this sort of like white middle class journalist who's maybe struggling a little bit but otherwise kind of making ends meet living in a sort of hope-filled time of coming out of eight years of obama where you know we were feeling like oh you know social justice is kind of happening um from a whitewash point of view we didn't really think oh yeah you know racism is a problem it's like yeah you know maybe he thinks racism is a problem but he also maybe thinks that it's something that is being resolved and is not nearly on the level of of you know dystopia that it actually was and is um yeah so all of those assumptions in place one could imagine him writing an article like this saying oh we're not anywhere near that you know yes we have some issues with um you know uh, well, as he says, um, the whole thing about, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, recoiling in horror at the government using to phrases like enhanced interrogation and surgical drone strikes. Um, I, he does at least acknowledge that those things exist. Um, I would, you know, you and I maybe argue that, that the different, the distance between that and full blown 1984 or a brave new world is, not as far as he makes it out to be when he says the word, you know, the phrase nowhere near, um, yeah. you know, or you and I can that depends imagine entirely. Yeah, that depends. Clearly nobody has ever surveyed or like harassed or intimidated Jonathan. Yeah, exactly. And so it's when those things aren't happening to you um, and you're already living in a, um, a world where they're heavily modulated through, um, through the press like he lives in a city with an organization called stop lapd spying because the lapd spies illegally on so many people right right yeah um, and that's been a problem since 2015 for sure yeah anyway, absolutely it's been whatever. a really long i derailed yeah. i derailed no, no, no. i mean it's topic it is, conversation it's relevant because part of the question i think the meat of it here is that your issue is with um him declaring that we're farther like him saying that the distance between where we were in 2015 and 1984 or these sort of dy dystopic visions um, to both be, be inclusive of both of them or possibly even more other ones. Um, he's arguing that that distance is far. Um, in other words, we're nowhere near. And I think you and I would probably argue that that distance may be discrete and determinable, um, but you and I would argue that there's a much further distance we could be away from it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, That's for like sure. much further, in which case we wouldn't use the words nowhere near. We might use yeah. the words of we're really dancing around the edge of this border here or, um, you know, we're definitely on the cusp. I, I yeah. You know, I mean, one of the I think that's kind of at the heart of a lot of this discussion is just how. Um, how does one recognize their existence in a dystopia? And if they do, what, you know, is life just a, just a dance between, or just some like existence on some spectrum between dystopia and utopia? And the, the extremes are sort of infinite in either direction. Um, and it's just some kind of like scale. Um, I, that does make it very binary, obviously. And I, I don't think that's. Hmm realistic but i think it's something well i like your question of how do you, the question uh, a question was asked a question was asked yes uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh how do you know if you're in a dystopia 
Yeah, I um I don't know. I mean, I think that um especially if it's one that gaslights you for asking the question. <laughs> right? Right? I so I had an interesting experience um and I think you'll appreciate this. So a little tangent. So um the other day after we had recorded some of the earlier dystopian episodes, um I was speaking to, speaking to a mutual friend of ours who has a philosophy degree and um and I I I'm sorry not sorry I asked some very poignant questions late at night while she was drunk on the video chat um knowing full well that she was going to have a strong opinion about it and she was like I'm going to go to bed in 5 minutes and I was like great I just have one question and then oh an my God. hour later which I kind of knew was going to happen fucking- landmine I, I did um i did apologize sort of i mean i apologized but also was pretty clear that that was my intent and she seemed it, it seemed fine um in the end she thought it was kind of funny um but she had some very strong opinions about um about what it means to be in a dystopia um also kind of some of the questions we were asking at, at the time and i don't need to go into all the details because it was sort of a, a drunken rant but um, one of the core things that she was kind of talking about was that um, she felt pretty strongly that if you are designing a dystopia, then you need to kind of position yourself from the viewpoint of like an omnipotent God or like an omniscient, om- omniscient, omniscient God. Um, okay. In the sense that you're, she was kind of, I think her argument was more of a moral attack on me as like, if you're going to design a good dystopia, then you're basically playing God. And I was like, well, yes, but... Eh, um, but my point. Are well, her, we could design yeah. one that we have nothing to do with. Yes, but um, but I, in order to like think of it as a conceptual whole, I suppose that requires of you a remote, a, a remote or a removed perspective. Yeah, her point was that um, which I think we'd kind of brought up before, which is that it will be heavily colored by our own perception of what um hell is what hell is or what value you know how things are valued um how experience well, is no valued. just that's not necessarily true at all you can figure that out you can figure out how to design <clears throat> a dystopia mm-hmm. for a group of which you are not a participant and you can design it to be as maximally painful for those people as possible without having anything to do with that i mean Yes. From observation yeah. alone, you can discover how to make life hell on someone else and then just do it. But it doesn't necessarily require that you have some kind of susceptibility or predilection towards that. Um, right? Yeah, right. And I don't think she's arguing that we have a, a, a predilection to do that. I was just, I think she's just kind of arguing that, um, that it's important to be aware of our own assumptions and um, you know, our assumptions about, so for instance, we were watching, well, I suppose anything yeah. you can observe becomes an assumption in some way. Yeah. I mean, the observation problem is a whole thing in and of itself, right? I mean, as the observer, you're, we started out with a dystopia problem and now we've arrived at the observation problem. Yeah. Well, like all good, um, good deep problems, they're, they're full of, other problems and everything's problems wicked problems (laughs) we've got a real wicked problem on our hands here right yes and we did it to ourselves yep um well how do you spell wicked (laughs) (laughs) w-i-k-t 
Fantastic. Uh, and just to be clear, I'm talking about wicked as in W I K T, not W I C K E D. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So, All right. So derailment. So that's okay. I was like, I'm so jealous that you got to have that great conversation without me. Well, um, I think there'll be plenty of opportunity for that in the future. Um, so I wouldn't worry too much. In fact, maybe as we get further down the road, I'm hoping to get her to be, a, she seems very interested in being a guest on the podcast. So, um, is she, she, sorry, she a guest of the realm, a guest of the realm. Yeah. Thank you. Correct terminology is important here around yeah. here. Uh, does she, uh, does the job that she does now, is that dependent on her degree? Like, is she working as a philosopher? I don't, I, she works in academia. Um, I think she works as sort of, um, partially administrative and a few other okay. things. I'm not sure. At one point she was working for a museum. Um, cool. Yeah. I mean, I, as a, as, I want to, yeah. Yeah. For how wanna, long I've known her, she's, she's had some interesting jobs. So, but I think that's a good wait, question for her. I want to start a like, ladies of philosophy street gang that would be fantastic and Love that would her. make a pretty great book to illustrate oh shit hang on i'll write it down for a spinoff yeah please do ladies of philosophy street i mean gang. I, this can be like the secular counterpoint to the catholic school girls yes, go on murderous yes, rampages. Yes. <laughs> okay secular counterpoint um while you're doing that i will um I'm going to just, for the people who are listening who maybe haven't listened to us before, the, the wicked problem is actually wicked. Um, and it, it stems from a, We just can't read the no, it was, language we've been yeah, speaking and reading since childhood, right? it turns out. Yes. <laughs> Context doesn't even help sometimes. Right? I mean, we spent a good five minutes where I read wicked as wicked. And I'd read it in some sentence and I was like, what is a wicked problem? And then we, oh. we looked it up on Wikipedia and I was like, but why do they call it wicked? And because I wasn't For reading it so, as... so... But we both were thinking that. I, w- I was trying to suss out too, like, but... But are we talking about wicked as in like has a wick that burns down? Like we were right. me- like just stretching for metaphors yeah. for like a half hour. Yeah, we were both really of us before I was like, is this wicked? Yeah, and then everything falls into place because you're like, oh, that's a very difficult wicked problem as opposed to wicked, whatever the hell that would mean in that context. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So. Uh. Anyway. So I feel like we've fully derailed. Let's try and get this train back on the tracks here. Um, so we were. T- uh, yeah. Are there any fatalities? There have, has the derailment lots, lots of caused body, any casualties? There are bodies everywhere. Um, there's a couple some, of cars on fire. Some, some poor man <laughs> who writes in Los Angeles has been thoroughly just, yeah, just lambasted on the internet by, by, a, by two assholes who think they know everything. Um, John. <laughs> John. <laughs> um, no, I actually, so, so just because we may disagree with his, um, his sort of estimation of distance from how far we are away from dystopia or these particular dystopian, uh, concepts, um, I actually really like the article. Um, number one being that he provides the full letter. Yes, that um, is nice, isn't it? Yeah. And so he doesn't, he takes quotes, um, he applies his own thoughts to them, and then uses them to kind of support his ideas, and then provides the full source at the bottom. I mean, obviously, you can't always provide the full source. But my point being is that he is 
um, he has sourced his information very well. And so I find there's no, there's very little criticism here. Um, I understand the points he's making. He supports them well. They're all fantastic. And my disagreements with them are um, semantic and pedantic and also, um, you know, the joy of Can having an argument. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. If we are anywhere near each other physically for Halloween and they yes. let us out, I feel like we should be the updated version of Tweedledee and Tweedledum, which could be semantic and pedantic. Oh, I love this. Yes. Also, all that right. Let me write that down okay. too. Um, okay. Yeah. Halloween costume. <laughs> We're doing really good work here, you guys. Such important. We work. are <laughs> doing such important work. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, as we were talking about designing dystopias, I think one of the core features, um, since we're kind of talking about 1984 and uh, A Brave New World, I think um, one of the, the two things that we've identified here that um, Aldous Huxley is bringing up in his letter uh, to George Orwell is the concept that, um, as he put it, it was... Let me find the quote here. Um, Whether in fact, so here's another quote from the letter. Um, Whether in fact, no, sorry. Whether in actual fact, the policy of the boot on the face can go on indefinitely seems doubtful. My own belief is that the ruling oligarchy will find less arduous and wasteful ways of governing and of satisfying its lust for power. And these ways will resemble those which I described in Brave New World. So he is saying that um, the sort of might makes right approach will give way to or will be inferior to the um, the sort of – I keep wanting to use the word soporific, but I don't think that's the right word. Um, that's like when you get high on opium. Yes, opium but that's the, that's, that's the idea, right, is to, to opiate or to kind of um, – Soporize the the masses and conjole them into um, obedience, right? So, as opposed to using force, you're using like as he calls it, um, uh, uh, suggestion. Well, there's a lower energy threshold for the amount of energy you have to put into getting to people to do what you want them to do. If you can convince them it's a good idea or their idea. Yes. Because then you don't have to work so hard. If it's their, if they think it's their idea, then they're going to want to do it. Uh, um, and yeah. like, I kind of see these things as a series of cascading triggers, right? Right. So, for example, why would you spend the time and resources and assume the personal risk of being militaristic and physically um, domineering and like physically oppressing people? When you can basically get people to narc on each other and be shitty towards each other out of like greed and a sense of classism and racism. I mean, I think this is how racism works, frankly, mm. is like you just give people enough of what they think they want that they're willing to defend what little they have against anybody else trying to get something for themselves. And if that fails, like if people won't take up arms against each other or like do things to control each other, each other for you, right. at that point, you can intervene as the position from the position of the state or the controlling factor, I guess, and say like, okay, well, uh, in order to like 
you know, all of you over here really enjoy what you've got. Like you work just on the borderline of exhaustion to afford the nice things. And because it's framed like a competition, you're not going to stop until it kills you. And if somebody tries to take that away from you out of necessity or some other motivation, irrelevant, whatever that may be, you're going to freak out about it. And you are going to call the state to institute violence on your behalf so that you don't have to do it. Right. And at that point, the state steps in and says, okay, this is worth it. And the approach to that particular scenario is either shoot people dead without due process or imprison them where you effectively remove them entirely from society. For other people, for like women, for example, refusing to allow birth control or family planning of any kind is a prison in and of itself because you keep women locked down with children and unable to do anything but care for those people who are entirely dependent. So it's like, it all depends on the flavor, right? I guess like, and that's what makes me think that Jonathan is completely wrong and was arguably wrong in 2015 and that we do live in a dystopia. It's just that ours are so specific and so tailored to us Mm -hmm. because they're marketed to us that we don't even normally have to see the more strong-armed aspects of that system because as long as we go along with thinking what's being provided to us and the choices that we're being offered are sufficient and appropriate, then we're going to do whatever we do to safeguard those choices against other people. Right. And so I think um, I think what you're... A little rambly. No, I no, really no. Con- I thought about this in this context before. I think it's good. And I think um, I think that fits well with some of the other thoughts that we've been kind of bandying about which was that um that supports the idea that um people not knowing they're living in a dystopia is part of um the successful execution yeah like one of the support pillars of it right so if if yeah it's you know any one individual can imagine can think they're in a dystopia but if the the bulk of the participants don't believe that then they have no reason to um, go against the status quo or to change things um, right? or, you know, to participate in change. Um, yeah. So I think that's kind of a critical uh, pillar of, of maintaining a good dystopia is to kind of keep people in that, that state of, of yeah, I think denial. so. Um, I mean, I think another thing that you, that we've kind of touched on is the idea of like with classes, class systems, um, whether that's divided by race or, um, you know, any of these other issues, uh, or, or by wealth or by, you know, some kind of social status, um, class systems are another great way because you, you can create a desire to be in the, you know, to want to kind of better your class, right? Um, yeah. rather than, because that's something that you perceive as something you can do for yourself as an individual. Um, not, you know, it's maybe harder or easier depending, but, um, I would argue that the amount of skin whitening products that sell in Asia suggests that, um, skin color isn't even a deterrent from people wanting to change their, their ability to be perceived as in a particular class. Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, anyway, um, (laughs) so designing, (laughs) that's a, that's an uplifting thought. Right. Um, designing dystopia. Let's, let's, let's plow forward. So, 
Um, in this letter, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, we've kind of pulled out some of the important um, facts as, or some of the important points, salient points. Um, it's interesting to me what Huxley says about like psychotherapy and he bags on Freud for not being able to hypnotize people. <laughs> Did you read that part? No. Uh, wait, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did. Hold on. Let me find it. I mean, I don't have it in front of me. I have the letter in front of me. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was... That yeah, was yeah. Here we go. Guys. So, um, oh, the part where he's like another lucky accident was Freud's inability to hypnotize successfully um, and his consequent disarrangement of hypnoti- disparagement of hypnotism. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, he disparages Freud for disparaging hypnotism, which Freud could not do, and oh, therefore disparaged. Right, right. <laughs> and so then he argues... That's so funny. Yeah, this delayed the general application of hypnotism to psychiatry for at least 40 years, but now psychoanalysis is being combined with hypnosis, and hypnosis has been made easy and indefinitely extensible through the use of barbiturates, which induce a hyp- hypnoid and suggest- suggestible state in, in even the most relu- uh, recalcitrant subjects. So... I think you and I should be like, we need to make t-shirts that say recalcitrant subject. I'm going to make a Yes, those are fantastic. Um, so, uh, I, so I think this is, um, one of his arguments here is basically, um, direct or, or focused efforts and methods for mind control. Um, or thought control, really. You know, I mean, that's kind of, it's, it's not so much, I don't, we don't care about controlling an individual's mind so much as directing, directing thought of the, of the participants, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's, that's the big power of the media, which I think, I think 1984 touches on, um, although it's so, um, rigidly controlled there that it's not really, it's not at the level of where we have, where, you know, we live in a society where we're constantly assaulted by propaganda and if you have enough money, you can assault masses of population with your own propaganda. And so yeah. if I want you to be afraid of, say, um, someone who's different than you, I can, you know, do lots of, I, if I have enough money, I can do that. And I can create the general feeling, like I can sway yeah. thought towards the idea of this class of person is bad, whether it's skin color or, um, you know, social status or their uh, economic status or any other number of things, um, including just their ideals of, you know, say vilifying people who are anti-fascist, which is hilarious to me because America is like inherently an anti-fascist state. Like that was our big thing up until recently. Like, yeah. I mean, from a, from a social idea, like, you know, if I you were the boomers, yeah, of course, absolutely. Um, well, no, I'm serious. No, we and I'm, I am too. We fought a war yeah. over it. Like, we fought a big-ass fucking war over it. Yep. And dropped a bunch of, like, nuclear bombs and, like, all kinds of shit. Yeah. Within living memory. Yes. Yeah. And the people who didn't carry that forward well enough are the people who came right after when that happened. And so I'm blaming them because I'm in a real blamey mood today. And well, so I'm blaming boomers about... Considering like, they're still in power... Right. Like, what are you doing? Like, you fucking our, assholes. Our peers, our, our age group and our cohort aren't in, you know, representative. Yeah. I don't have, you know, there's no one my age and in my cohort that's in the, you know, 
House of Representatives. There's a lot of like Nazis and shit in Northeast. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's all <laughs> fucked up. Um, <laughs> we just saw some guy in a bike the other day, a motorcycle bike the other day with yeah. like some fucking Aryan Brotherhood motorcycle vest oh, on. Oh God. And I was like, so morally ambivalent at that point. Like I, I'm so compelled to run you over, and yet. I shan't. I shan't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would have been a tough argument between a large bike and a small smart car. So, yeah, that's fair. Um, you weren't fully. I don't equipped. know that I'm the. I don't know that that one's that one's my call. Right, right. <laughs> I don't know if I have the necessary equipment. Anyway, yeah, killing Nazis is sort of like a thing we all used to agree on, and now we don't. <laughs> I know, right? It's like what. How did we get here? We literally, literally used to agree on killing Nazis. Right. It was just Nazis are bad. Full stop. No one, no one is ever agreeing that that, that's a good thing. We used to agree on literally and Nazis. Yep. Yes. Now we agree on neither. Right. We're over two. Over two. Um, yeah, I don't know. So, um, so yeah, so that would be another core factor or core sort of pillar of, um, creating a good dystopia, I believe is a method for eroding the truth. Say this again. So Say that again. A method for like devaluing or eroding the truth. So, um, you want to, in a good dystopia, it should be difficult to know the truth. Um, so information should be controlled 100% of the time. Yeah, but more than that, even when you... So in a good dystopia, even when the truth gets out, people are less likely to believe it. Well, right. Even in the face of it. Um, sure, because that's what they want you to think. Right. And so having a method to uh, erode the truth and being very effective at that is a big part of it. Um Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a it's an interesting problem, um, you know, because we're I mean we're obviously talking about designing a good dystopia, so more of that. Um, which, like, how to turn that up is pretty obvious. How to turn that down is less so. Um, I don't know what the answer is to the sort of you know if you were like for a moment being like okay right so we kind of live in a in a country right now where. Um, you know, reason is is been has been and continues to be lambasted and attacked for you know it's been it's been that way for generations. I mean, there's just been a huge, huge movement to um, destroy any any kind of rational thought or any kind of like um, thinking that involves or or ideas that are true. You know, not it's even ideas. Like it's postmodernism, Ned. It's postmodernism. But my point being is that I I it's real obvious how to get here and it's really obvious how to turn that up even more um you just yeah. kind of allow more and more propaganda and you allow more and more you like um, you say that every statement the truth value of every statement is equivalent to the truth value of every other statement right yes yeah i mean all of these things you can do but how do you turn that down how do you you know the truth isn't this sort of like it turns out the truth is real fragile you know what i mean like it's uh you know, on the face of it in and of itself, a pen is a pen is a pen. Like, you know, we, we all agree on this, but it turns out that 
it's not about the physical manifestation. It's about what everybody else agrees on. And your and one's ability to um, persuade people to agree in one direction or another is entirely dependent on, you know, how much money you can pour into the system. I agreed with you up until you hit your microphone with your pen. And now I'm starting to think maybe it's really more about the microphone than the pen. Exactly. Right. So you just <laughs> want to get away from the whole fucking pen and entirely change the stru- subject. Um, yeah. Well, no. uh, I just think, um, like, so this is kind of the argument, the ongoing argument with, like, dismantling police and prisons, right? So yeah. uh, if something is super fucked up and doesn't work, then trying to remake that thing without removing the essence of the thing that makes it bad is not going to work. Right. You, so it's you have to remove the thing that is the problem you can't reform that thing because reshaping the thing that the the thing existing is the problem mm-hmm. not the form that it takes right and so right. uh there's a lot of conversations that go in that direction and a lot of people have written about that but my point is like you know if if you go to a, a doctor and you say like i have this pain and they're like oh it's cancer and you're like, great, let's get rid of it. And they're like, well, we can't get rid of it. Let's just try and make it something that you are more able to live with. You'd be like, you're fucking crazy. Right. I'm seeking a second opinion. Where I'm at is like so far, I'm on like the third or fourth opinion at this point because the only things that make sense to me anymore in terms of dismantling or in terms of improving conditions in a dystopia are to dismantle the dystopia. Mm-hmm. Like... And I, how, how to dismantle a, a dystopia? That's like a whole other, like, podcast series. It, it really probably is. Probably an entire podcast, frankly. Yes. Like, does yeah. Crime Think have a podcast? They're probably already doing that podcast. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe not. Maybe that's a, you know, that's something that would be a worthy endeavor with all our free time. Um, right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, like, I I mean you have you have to get buy in from the public and then you have to put words in their mouths, right? I guess if you want to like keep a dystopia going, I guess I mean it's. I think uh, sometimes I think um, that you do you do to an extent. Um, in you know it depends on the size of the population and kind of the you know one of the things i was thinking about with this problem of designing a good dystopia um i think what we haven't said but is worth saying is we're probably arguing that the best dystopia is one that lasts indefinitely as opposed to creating um a dystopia that is a moment in time, like say for instance, a year or some period Mm -hmm. of time where it maximizes its sort of human suffering and existence for all participants. Um, I would, I, I think, I think what we're getting at is that this is, we're talking about a dystopia that is both, you know, uh, self writing and just, and sort of, um, self fulfilling. So it sort of keeps itself going. I think, Mm um, uh, one of the ways that you do that is you have um, inheritance of power. Ah, nice one. Um, inheritance of power is 
a long-standing tradition that um, creates that situation where the person who, you know, so if we're kind of talking about dictators or the sort of the, the, the participants who are sitting on top of the, the pyramid scheme, um, mm-hmm. r- it, believe that they are experiencing the best life has to offer, right? Um, yep. And so their experience is one that they want to protect that. Um, and so as they inherit and they, and they inherit this and so they don't know any other life anyway. Um, and so if you don't allow, uh, movement up or down the pyramid, you, you do create a very sort of stagnant like system. So as long Mm -hmm. as there's no external factor, um, it's probably pretty well self-writing because I think, um, as you're kind of born into something, it's much harder <clears throat> to leave that thing than if you were, say, found your way into it midlife or at some point having known there's something better to be had. Um, but like, okay, so you know how we always talk uh, not about 100%, how people are, yeah. yeah, the, the, like, the slight, sli- slightly under a hundred percentedness of that, like, you know how we talk about reiterators all the time and how people are just biological reiterators and yeah. the universe is just reiterating a bunch of shit over and over again. Um, <clears throat> so like if you have, like at some point there's going to be a wild card in there somewhere that will either seed power where others have not or disavow power or not be able to defend it or something like that's where she gets really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. I'll have to think about that some more. Do you mean, um, uh, why, why do you think it gets interesting? What is it about that? Just, well, just the, I like, the, all I, the doors I like the, yeah. I like the variables that cause the disruption. I like, so in a, if you have a thing that's reiterating and the goal is to have a perfect reiteration every time. Right. At some point, something's going to go a little wrong, and the thing that goes wrong is unpredictable sometimes. Right, right. And when it's very unpredictable is when it's the most intriguing. Yeah. And I, just in general, I like those situations. Yes, yeah. Um I find those to be the most fun. Well, yeah. I mean, they could be really terrible, too. <laughs> right, right. But, like... uh I don't know. Anyway, that's another small derailment there. Right. So right. yeah, I'm just trying, I'm thinking about the benefit of enduring, uh, enduring dystopias. And like, so, hmm. What's like the ultimate end goal? Like, if you want a dystopia to continue forever, right. why do you want it to continue forever? Because we don't continue forever. And so it's of limited utility for any, at any time you think about a dystopia, it's of limited utility to the people experiencing it at any given moment because those people will eventually be dead. And then whatever the status of that utopia is becomes a moot point. Right. I, I from the perspective of someone who cares about longevity. Yeah, so I think that um this touches on some of the sort of some core kind of existential crises that that plague the sort of human existence. Um So are just are the ways that dystopia are designed done so to alleviate existential dread? Um well, I mean, I think about 
I, this is a, I, I feel like this is not quite the right question. Um, okay. A question was asked, Ned. Yes. Uh, the reason I say maybe not the right question, or what I think is that this question, it begs more questions. So, um, raises more questions. It raises more questions. For instance, uh, you've kind of turned things on the, on its head a little bit by saying, you know, okay, well, what are the benefits of a dystopia? Um, or what, you know, what are the sort of in, what's the internal logic of it and why it wants to maintain itself as like a, an entity? Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, I think you can, I think that kind of plays to the existence of humans, um, and their sort of maybe to their nature or to their kind of like disposition, uh, which is to say what does that mean? In dystopias are inevitable. Uh, no, I mean, I don't know. I think that what it means is that, um, it's worth looking at and talking about. So like we're doing, like it's worth thinking about how is a, um, you know, how is a dystopia something that comes about? Um, we can look at human history and, and look back on lots of, um, sort of very difficult times to be living through, um, and kind of reference that as sort of a dystopian experience. Um, and one could argue that they are stayed that way. They stay that way because individuals are given a certain amount of power. And so when you have so much more power than those around you, um, you are pushed into a place where you want to preserve that both for your own personal existence, because oftentimes <clears throat> losing that power means also losing your life. Um, yeah for many people losing that power, even if they don't physically die, it means losing the life that they had. Um, yes. And for them, the perceived suffering that comes past that time. Right. So if you're kind of like, if we're looking at current times, Trump wants to hold on to the presidency as long as he can, because his life afterwards is not going to contain as much power from his per- point of view, possibly. Sure. Right. Sure. So yeah. he's going to fight for his life as far as he's concerned. Um, which means it's going to be a very, very gross and disgusting transition of power. I'm pretty sure if, if we even get there, um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure that we're going to be able to elect a new person, um, regardless of, well, you know, okay. So, but you know that whole, yeah, go on. <laughs> but I, that's a, that's a political discussion. Play that outfield. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. But, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just hanging out in like. Left field behind first base, like way out here. And if right. some crazy shit comes this way, I'll catch it. But like until, oh, I, what day is today? Today is August 23rd. Yep. Everybody, we're recording this podcast on Sunday, August 23rd. It is 2.28 p.m. in Minneapolis. Yeah. 14.28 if you're into the whole military time thing. But anyway, <clears throat> it's way too fucking soon to tell. Like, we somehow still have not addressed the issue of why we never had a fucking primary. Right. Right. So, like, uh, I, uh, we're still in cuckoo time where nothing means anything and we're just not talking about certain things or we're just not able to talk about certain things with any agreement on what the basis of the reality is for that conversation. Right. And so, like, I have no idea. You might be right. You might be right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I hope not. Um, and I hope... Uh, you know, I have a lot of hope regardless of, uh, my personal feelings about, 
uh, Kamala Harris and, and um, Joe Biden, uh, they're clearly <laughs> they're clearly a, a slightly better choice, and a slightly better choice is a lot, right? Um, in this case, yes. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I don't want to get too like hyperbolic about it. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Like, uh, it could be it could be so much worse. Like. Ugh. Yeah, and it always can be, and I don't think it, I think it's valuable to continue to kind of voice dissatisfaction with the system and be more, you know, hopefully be more proactive about changing it um, where yeah. we can. Um, but that's I find myself saying like when I hear things on like in the background or read things or like the way headlines are phrased and like sound bites and things like that. I don't watch television, by the way. Yeah, I mean neither. Everything I, I get it I off is off the internet right so i ha i can be selective about what i watch and i don't watch ads but like every time something comes into my consciousness about politics lately i just like find myself muttering under my breath like you motherfuckers you motherfuckers uh -huh. like yes. like making joe biden the guy that has to stand up to donald trump and making um you know joe making joe biden be the guy with like a black lady for a fucking vice president it's just like oh you motherfuckers you motherfuckers you're just you're just like god you ruin everything yeah yep yep oh it makes me super mad i'm like exhausted by how mad i am but like you know it's not new every i'm you know what i'm fucking sick of hearing too because like i'm 40 uh -huh. and i'm getting real tired of it being on a broken record every two to four years this is the most important election you'll ever vote in this is the most important election of our lifetimes you guys have been saying that for 40 fucking years yep yeah like you're not getting it right like we we have now gone through two generations of people who've heard nothing but that their entire lives. Right. Yeah. And yet, um, I you know, more and more people feel like their votes are not being counted or not being heard or not representative of what they're what they're you know. If it's perpetually the if it's perpetually the most important election that we're ever going to be involved in or the most important election thus far in our country's politics or however you want to phrase it. And you say that every time that means things are getting progressively worse, right? That's what that means, right? So anytime you see us, it's the worst election of our lives, right. but that's right. every election. And if it's the worst election of our lives, every time you ask us, then by definition, that means everyone is worse than the one that came before it. So fucking figure it out already. Or like, shit, um, we're just not going to do any of this anymore. Yeah. That's like, we're just not doing this anymore. We're just going to do something else. We're going to put all y'all's old asses in homes because you like are all getting rich off of that now. Like nursing homes and long-term care facilities are like the next big swindle. So everybody gets to be locked up the way that they've made policy to lock other people up. And then we just don't have to listen to any of you. You get elevator music and sedatives all day long. Right. And that kind of brings us back to a brave new world, right? So, yep. um, and that's kind of what Aldous, Aldous Huxley was kind of arguing for was that, that, that is the, um, that's the lower energy state of a dystopia. And which is why he argues that's the one that will continue and kind of come about. Um, which one could argue even while he was alive, that was in, in existence, um, in some form or another. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, anyway, um, I feel like we've kind of 
worked through this letter pretty well. And I think this is kind of, um, I don't know. I would love to talk to Huxley and yes. be like, so here's the status update in like yes. two thirds of the way through 2020. How much worse than you expected are things uh-huh. in reality? Right. Like how much, how about if we just like, he's like, oh, you could have chocolate chips or you could have snickerdoodles or you could have an ice cream sandwich. And we're like, how about if we like put all of them together and then melt them on the dashboard and then drive a car off the cliff? Right. <laughs> how about that dystopia? Uh, 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 Here's your cookies. <laughs> now you die. <laughs> right. But I don't even like ice cream. That's fine. You won't get to eat it anyway. It'll just be oozing all over you as it melts on the dashboard. You can't swallow ice cream while you're screaming. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, my God. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Speaking of um, just like human suffering, I watched uh, uh, Little Shop of Horrors last night again. <laughs> yes. And... Um, I so we we did a movie night um like out in the backyard of a friend's house like on a big big like sheet with a projector it was great and um and I we watched the di- director's cut which I had not seen before which has the alternate ending um or the director's oh. ending which is that um so Seymour and Audrey both die getting eaten by the plant and then the plants take over the world and eat all of the people um and it, it it goes on like it's not yeah. like like so you, the kind of the movie the sort of like small small storyline plot with Seymour and yes. um, and Audrey who he kind of finally sort of they express their love for each other and then Audrey is killed by the plant and then Seymour feeds Audrey to the plant and then Seymour himself gets eaten by the plant because he's like I've had enough I'm gonna kill the plant and then the plant's like nah I'm gonna eat you eats eats him and then um, the plants are sold all over the world by the marketing guy who then sells all these plants the little baby plants and then the next scene is just the scenes it's just scene after scene of cities being ravaged by these giant you know carnivorous plants eating people and destroying buildings and the army like fighting them and the national guard being overrun by these plants and just like they're bigger and bigger and they're you know there's a scene of one plant like on top of um the statue of liberty and just it's just you know like end of the world and um (laughs) i don't know why i'm telling this part of it because that was not the point i was trying to make the point was earlier in the movie when um when you meet um the character when you meet the um the dentist i can't remember his name already yeah. um but he's played by um uh uh martin uh steve martin and um yeah. and it's it he's a hilarious character cuz he's just this like you know he's he's like the classic um like psychopath who found a yes. way to like make his make his sort of uh, I mean, as the song goes, like find a way to make your your habits pay or something, which is that mm-hmm. he's like basically tortures people in his in his office as a dentist. And, um, <sighs> yes, so great. Yeah, and then you were saying you can't eat ice cream when you're screaming, and there's this scene right. where the patient is like strapped into the dentist chair and he's screaming, but then um, Steve Martin is squirting water into his mouth, and so he's like screaming and bubbling and choking on the water, and then later, um, Bill Murray shows up as this absolute masochist who's just 
giddy with excitement, hopping up and down on the chair in the waiting room. Can't wait to get in to see the dentist and do all the torturous things. Like he has his own bib that he's already ready, brought like in his pocket <gasps> to put on. Like everything about it. Bill Murray just does an yes. excellent job. Um, anyway, it's like showing up to Red Lobster with your own claw cracker. Yeah, exactly. No, thanks. I have my own. Um, I've got my own. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so. I was thinking about just sort of human suffering and dystopia and how um, it's funny because depending on the disposition of the person and their per- perception, that's kind of what I was wondering about whether um, is it a dystopia if the people who are participating are um, okay with it. So, for instance, yeah. like Bill Murray's like, sign me the fuck <clears throat> up. I want my teeth pulled. I'm really excited about this. Like the more like he's giddy with the pain and suffering of it um, that's being inflicted on him. Right. And then, of course, that is disturbing to the dentist, to Steve Martin, who is then like, get the fuck out of here, you weirdo. Um, well, that's interesting. Right. Because like <clears throat> if the if it it can't simply be that the dystopia is unpleasant to the majority because like that's what if you take this to its logical conclusion you say no oh, the dystopia is still fine it's just this one weirdo who doesn't isn't bothered by it right right but right. like okay what if he's one weirdo out of everybody what if it's a hundred weirdos out of everybody? What if it's like the more weirdos who are dis- are, are disaffected by the dystopia, right? The less effective <clears throat> the dystopia. So it can't, at the very least, it can't be a very good one, right? Right. I mean, at some point, if the masses are are sort of um, happy about it and and participating, but that kind of brings me back to my thoughts about um, when you look at, say, like a multicellular organism, and you. Yeah you imagine that societies could sort of model the functions of a multicellular organism, right? Like where each yeah. individual plays some part for a greater whole, then, yeah. um, <clears throat> then you start to see like, well, in multicellular organisms, um, there's certain cells you want to be over ones you don't. Um, yeah. There's some cells that are very sacrificial that have like rapid reproduction time and their existence is like, you know, your skin cells are constantly dying and flaking off of your body in order to protect the rest of you um, to like ho- hold your organs inside and do all of the other functions. Whereas like, yeah. like nerve cells and brain cells live a very long time relatively and are, you know, basically weighted on hand and foot. They get everything they need. If they're unhappy, everybody stops to make sure they're happy again. Um, so it's, I, I think about that and I'm like, that just seems like a dystopian nightmare in a natural in existence. Now, of course, um, I don't think it translates that well in the sense that, um, each individual cell doesn't necessarily have like this, this sort of center of cognition that, that we ascribe to human beings or to like higher cell organisms. Um, yeah. so, you know, obviously that's another factor, right? That's kind of an issue of of that but well, we've got some factors here yeah we've got a lot of factors so yeah i like thinking about things in terms of biomimicry <laughs> yeah me too me too um and so i thought um we could maybe just leave our listeners with that thought and maybe they can cogitate on it and if you have thoughts and ideas uh you can reach here's us. a thought i had yes go really quickly yep well only because we very rarely we don't have like that internet law where everything just devolves into like killing nazis in our conversations right um 
<clears throat> so since it's, it's only unusual one that ten. it comes up, yeah, <laughs> I'll just like corral it in here. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so I'm just thinking about the whole like, well, at one point our like national policy was shoot Nazis on sight. And now we've got, we've moved away from that, which is great because like shooting people on sight is not advisable. Right. Uh, usually because the reasons for doing it are pre-conjectured and so you can change them around at will and you can shoot at anybody under those circumstances so anyway yeah uh shooting at random people not great but wouldn't it be fucking weird if nazis somehow like had a change of heart and like launched this huge campaign to like turn around national socialism so that it represents the opposite of what it used to like how bizarro would that be um we would have to talk about like well which era of nazis <laughs> right a fan right it would get very confusing yeah i mean i think um i, I think that- there were some very good people on both sides ned god damn it right fuck um i what i think is that um that labels are not as important. Labels are useful for the ter- for in terms of discussion. Um, uh-huh. But uh, when we're talking about, um, you know, when we're talking about socialism, it's a complex issue because, you know, you and I, when we talk about it, like we want to talk about the ideas of it. And so yeah. when we're talking about Nazism, <laughs> um mm-hmm we're talking about like the i don't know that much about the history of the word um but it is a party traditionally it was a german party right that um it was a political party right it was a political german it was the national socialist party yeah and so um the idea of parties shifting is not unknown to us i mean we had you know the the republican party was the sort of free the slaves party at one point um that's not the case anymore, like, but, um, yeah. you know, clearly by their association with white nationalists and, and all of the racism that they've upheld since then. But, um, but my point being is that, that parties shift for lots of reasons. Um, and so it's not, I think when you and I talk about condemning Nazis or, or as you're kind of eloquently put it, shooting Nazis on site and now changing our policy to, a less violent approach, which we both agree on, which is that violence is generally not a good solution long term. Um, it's not a good policy. It's not a good policy. No, it's not no. one that I want to <laughs> no, live no, under. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Um, but what I'm getting at is that uh, it would be it would be bizarre and interesting, and it would be pretty bizarre to say that um, at some point, like in 50 years, there is like like the way that we kind of have a green party that's never really gotten anywhere but you know they continue to try and exist and and push their agenda yeah. um the way a nazi party might become the sort of flag bearer of socialism in america um <sighs> which you know if that happened overnight would be kind of amazing if if we are to continue to live in a sort of white dominated um and oppressed society well at least they'd have some position of power to move us towards a socialist society. But I, I don't think that you can have a true socialist society. If, as you've talked about, they are focused on marginalizing um, other classes of individuals, which is what 
we've identified as an important factor in creating a good dystopia. So, um, yeah, there you go. There you go. You just like closed it up. Close the loop. Bring it right back around. Close the loop. Look at that. Look at that. So, um, <laughs> I will make a third attempt to uh, steer this towards the end of this podcast for now. I am done talking. Okay, fantastic. So, uh, I think we did. Um, I I think we did not do anything justice, other than we did talk about things, and hopefully, our listeners are still interested. Um, if you have thoughts and ideas about this, you can reach us at um, at fcbm.io. So HTTPS uh, colon slash slash fcbm.io uh, where you can find contact information <laughs> for instance like you can write dana at fcbm.io if you want to get hold of our system manager um she can direct your queries um she can also she's, handle she's your questions and stuff. yeah she's our executive assistant, executive assistant. Um, you can also uh, just hit us at contact at fcbm.io for the general mailbox um uh, you can find us on Twitter, you at which is at fcbm underscore io, and also on Instagram, which we're less active on. Well, we're not super active on either one, but if you do message us or um, tag us on either of those, we will get to it pretty quickly. Um, yeah, so that's it. I think we just need a tip for living well in hell, <coughs> which I'm sure um, we could think of several after this conversation. <coughs> I tell you what, I am kind of looking forward to winter when I don't have a fan like permanently positioned and like making me die. Yes. Right. It's like, I, I same right now. It's pretty hot here in San Diego. Um, I've had a fan, uh, most evenings or, uh, like as I go to bed <coughs> and then waking up with a dry scratchy throat because it's Ugh. just, you know, full of dry desert, hot hair, hot air. Well, it's been kind yeah. of humid lately. So that's been, is it smoky? It's, it's fairly smoky. The closest fires are, um, much further North in Northern County, San Diego. Um, it's nothing like what's going on in the sort of Bay area, which is, is kind of a nightmare right now. Um, yeah. but crazy. Yeah. So, uh, so, um, yeah, here's something like, yes. don't let the things that are comfortable to you kill you. Ah. Right. Right. That's the opposite direction that you want to go with that. Yep. Yep. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So I think, uh, I think that's a good, a good tip. Don't let the things that are comfortable to you kill you. So, um, you know, maybe just watch out for those. Watch out for those. Be mindful of them. You know, like that ties into Little Shop of Horrors too. Look at that. Yeah, look at that. If you've got a, if you've got a, um, a slightly blood bloodthirsty plant that's currently cute and, uh, you know, getting yep. you garnering garnering you some fame and attention, um, be wary. Don't let it get I, away from you. Yeah. I think that's sound advice. Yep. You may be, you may find you're feeding your, uh, your newfound love interest to it and then yourself <clears throat> momentarily. And then yourself. So, yeah. Yes. Um, okay. All right. All right. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>